Lord, once again, we come to you grateful for our Lord Jesus and for him revealing himself in greater fashion each and every week throughout this epiphany season. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to do so as your word is brought forth this morning to us, because we believe these scriptures to be what they claim to be, your word to us, so that we might know you, follow you, and be your people here in our age. I pray that you would think our thoughts, that I would speak your words, and you would set our hearts on fire with love for you and for your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. At the end of Epiphany every year, this, this text is read of the Transfiguration from the varying perspectives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's just something the, the Anglican lectionary does, and it's a good one. It's a good thing to do. But as I mentioned earlier, you, you might have read it this week in preparing for this Sunday, and you probably have thought to yourself, I've been there, done that. You know, this, this, we've been here, we do this every year. Well, I think if you step back and you see the differing perspectives, we see, learn some great truths, which I know will help us not only as we walk into Lent this week, but as we live our lives henceforth. And so I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew 17, for as you recognize, I had Bob read past verse 9. Because that's what happens to me. Iris starts printing the bulletin on Thursdays, and I get to about Thursday afternoon at 2.30, and I go, ah, i got to bring this text more. There's more to it. And so bring your Bibles, Matthew 17, because we're going to look all the way down to verse 21 this morning. And what we learn from this is, number one, what do we learn from the transfiguration? Two, why we learn from the transfiguration, and three, what difference does it make? Number one, what do we learn? Two, why do we learn? And three, what difference does it make? Well, first, what do we learn from the transfiguration? Well, I would suggest we learn two great truths in this passage of the transfiguration. Number one, God and Jesus is the, is the object of our relationship and worship of the Lord. And two, he's the secret to our relationship and our worship of the Lord. Right? So first of all, he's the object of our relationship and worship. You know, centuries ago, we heard read in the book of Exodus, starting with chapter 24, and all the way through Exodus 33, Moses is with the Lord on Mount Sinai. God comes down in this cloud, and he speaks out of the cloud, and it's the voice of God, and everyone is absolutely terrified, so Moses goes to the top of the mountain, and by the time you get to chapter 33, Moses wants to see God's glory. Show me your glory, your perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness, and unimaginable beauty, Show me your face, O Lord. In Exodus 33, God says, When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, Moses, and cover you with my hand till I have passed by. But my face you cannot see. No one can look upon me and live. Moses is not able to see the glory of God, but 
but even getting near to God, God gives him a reflective glory. His face shone with the reflected glory of God for a number of days. And as Bob read this text this morning from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 17, we're on top of another mountain. Well, there's glory again. There's dazzling brightness again. It's not an earthly glory. Mark's Gospel records the transfiguration that Jesus was whiter than any clothes could ever be bleached. There's a heavenly glory. There's a mountain, there's a cloud, there's the voice of a cloud. We even have Moses back. How much clearer could it be? So, is this just Mount Sinai all over again? No. There's an astounding difference. Because Moses reflected the glory of God like the moon reflects the the rays of the sun. But Jesus produces the glory of God. The glory of God emanates from him. He's the source of the glory. The unsurpassable, unapproachable glory of God comes from him. And what this means is Jesus does not point to the glory of God like Elijah and Moses. He is the glory of God. He is God in human form, and it's an astounding revelation. Hebrews records it like this. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's being. He's the exact representation. And that means Jesus is the ultimate expression the unsurpassable, nothing higher possible expression of the infinite, overwhelming superlativeness, the glory and beauty of God. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Of course, that means he's not just a teacher to follow. He is that, but he's infinitely more. Because of this kind of claim, it destroys the middle ground. It destroys destroys fence-sitting. It destroys the idea that you may call yourself a Christian and yet you don't submit in any way, in any area of your life, unto him. If this claim is not true, then you have to reject him as some kind of megalomaniac. But if this claim is true, you can't just follow him. You have to center your entire life upon him. You have to make him the object of your soul's ultimate worship. The fence is gone. The middle ground is gone. So that's the first thing. He's the object of our relationship with God and our worship of God. Secondly, he's the secret of our relationship and our worship. And by that I mean is this. The second thing that happens here that's never happened on Mount Sinai is completely astounding. The glory of God is in the cloud. When Moses was there, God came down on Mount Sinai. He came down as a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. Notice that he speaks out of the cloud to Moses. It's his raw presence. And up to the point, God, up to that point, God's raw presence has always been fatal for humans. 
And so when God said to Moses, you may not look upon my face and live, what he's saying was there's an infinite gap between deity and humanity. There's a chasm. You can't take my reality. You can't take my holiness. You can't take my glory. It'll destroy you. This is the reason Peter is scared, by the way. Did you catch it in verse 4? Lord, it is good we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. There's this humorous, nervous energy going here. He knows what's happening. He's hearing God speak. He goes, ah, we got to worship. Let's build a tabernacle, you know, because that's the Greek word. The Greek word for tent is translated also tabernacle. See, when God's glory comes on Mount Sinai, what did they do? He just spent seven chapters talking to Moses about building the tabernacle. So the Shekinah glory came down. And they built a tabernacle. Why? And all religions do this because all religions understand there's an infinite gap between deity and humanity. Therefore, all religions have temples and tabernacles and they're filled with priests and sacrifices and rites and rituals to transform your consciousness or to take away your sins or something to meditate on to protect you to bring you into the presence of God in that space and to, to mediate that gap between us and God. So what Peter is actually saying is here, we need some protection. We need a tabernacle. We, we need to set up sacrifices and things to protect us from the presence of God. And then immediately after that, something happens that you need to pay attention to, and it's shocking to the first century reader. We're told, then the cloud appeared, and it enveloped them, and a voice from within the cloud, this is the Shekinah glory cloud, and said, verse 5, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And they didn't die. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're Peter, James, and John? You know the story of Moses. You know he got hit in the rock, and God only showed him his backside, and all of a sudden, here's God. I'm not dead yet. How could that be? They looked around, and suddenly they saw no one but Jesus. That's Matthew's way of saying in the strongest of terms, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And they saw nothing but Jesus. Because Jesus is not just the bridge on the other side of the gap. Jesus is the bridge over the gap. Jesus is the temple and tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles. Because he is the sacrifice and priest that ends all sacrifice and all priests. Through him, the infinite beauty and glory of God can envelop you, dear one. See, when the cloud came down, it's not just that they didn't die. It's not that it wasn't just non-fatal. It was worship. It was relationship with a loving God who loves us between the God the Father and God the Son. And they were surrounded by the reality of God. They were embraced by it. They were 
they heard the glory of God the Father speaking the love the Father has for the Son. It's the gospel. And suddenly it goes away. And that what they sensed the reality of God, their reality met their knowledge. It went away and they realized Jesus is able to give them what Elijah and Moses cannot give them. No one can possibly deliver. That through Jesus, you can come into the very heart of the universe in a relationship with the living God. And worship is a foretaste of all the things in our hearts we long for, whether we know it or not. Know it or not. We long for it in our art. We long for it in our music. We long for it in working hard in our businesses. We long for it in our romance. We long for it in the arms of our lovers. We long for it through our family. We long for it as parents through the identity of our kids. C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, quote, The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. See, worship is not just believing. See what happened to the disciples up there? They, they already believed in God. Peter, in the previous chapter, has already said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Check. Their theology's right. Okay? But they didn't sense it until now. They saw it. They experienced it. The very presence of God enveloped them. It's a foretaste of what Lewis says all of us are looking for. That one day to sit on God's lap, be embraced by him, surrounded, enveloped by him and his love. Welcome into the heart of things. <laughs> into the heart of the universe. Jesus is not just the base of our relationship with God and the object of our worship. He's also the basis of our relationship and the secret of our worship. That's what we learn in this text. And, and that is spectacular, but immediately... And that's why I had Bob kept reading. You immediately see how practical it is. Because if you keep reading down in verse 14, they come down from the mountain. Well, this is where we get the term, the mountaintop experience. You've all been on great retreats, right? You got away with a group of guys or a group of girls or maybe a couple's retreat. 
and you learned a lot about the Lord, you grew in the Lord, you came back and you came home and the puppy pooped on the floor. Right? The kids are arguing like crazy. Someone gets sick. Life happens. And that's exactly what happens as they come off the mountain. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, and the rest of the disciples are down, and there's a poor father. And his precious son, whom he loves, is demon-possessed. So he brings him to Jesus, and guess what? Jesus isn't there. So the other disciples say, that's all right. We'll take care of it. And they can't. And the Pharisees are there, and they're arguing, and we don't even know what they're arguing about. And the disciples are trying, and none of it's working. In other words, they're surrounded by the real world. And it's broken. And everybody's confused, and they don't know how to handle, the, they don't know how to handle this as they're plunged back into the situation. In fact, the same thing happened with Moses, didn't it? He came down off the mountain. His brother Aaron looks up and goes, well, I guess the old boy's dead. Uh, let's worship this calf. Boom. This is the way for Matthew to tell us something that's very important, dear friends, that mountaintop experiences ebb and flow. They're intermittent, and they're important. But basically, we come down off the mountain, and we continue our journey on a life to the cross. Jesus says, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And did you notice, as Jesus comes down in verse 9 off the mountain, he says to them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why? Because no one's going to believe it until the resurrection. You know? No one's going to believe a word about the transfiguration at all until the resurrection. Because the transfiguration then is a foretaste. It's a glimpse of how Jesus will appear to you and I in glory and in the new heaven and the new earth. It's just an episode. And mountaintop experiences happen, and we should happen, and we should take the priority to get away as a group at times. We do retreats and do all kinds of things. But the reality is Jesus is coming down because he's going to Jerusalem to die upon the cross. Now, this isn't just a way for Matthew to say this is true of Jesus. It's basically true for all of us as well. Jesus says elsewhere, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's life to have your dog throw up on the floor. It's life when kids don't behave. It's life happens when someone makes fun of you because of your faith. I have never been called a bigot this year in my life until this year, just because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's all right. I, did, I was able to diffuse the situation a little bit, but the reality is when the world pushes back on us, it's, it's not fun. You see, there's this interesting conversation that goes on here about Elijah. Because we don't like the idea of walking the way of the cross, right? No one wants to hear that. 
unless you're a little bizarre. But what goes on here? You know, the disciples say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Because who did they just see? Elijah and Moses. Because they know in their minds that in Malachi, Malachi the prophet says, Elijah will come first, and then the kingdom of God will be ushered in. And, he goes, and Jesus is telling them, no, we're going to suffer and die. Because immediately after the text, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And later on, Jesus says this to Peter, and Peter goes, no, this isn't part of the program. You know, we didn't sign up for that. You need to, you need to, you know, Elijah would bring in the great day of the Lord. You know, God would appear and make everything right. As a matter of fact, why don't you just take your place, Jesus? It's time. We saw Elijah up there. So what's up with all this suffering talk? Well, Jesus straightens out their thinking. To be sure, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. Elijah, excuse me, verse 11, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. You know what he's saying. Hey, the new Elijah was John the Baptist, guys. And he has come, and he suffered and died. I am the new Moses. And I'm not just going to come lead you out of political bondage. I have come to deliver you from sin and death and give you eternal life, an abundant life. But first, I have to suffer. Jesus is saying, why isn't suffering part of your program, boys? Anytime suffering comes up, the idea to follow me means you're going to have to suffer. You just freak out. In this world, you have tribulations. The only way I can come into this tribulational world and save it is to go from suffering to greatness. I'm here to do just that. But every time, boys, you, you talk about, I talk about suffering, you say, no, 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 no. That won't happen. Why is God letting this happen to me? Well, in this world, you will have troubles no matter who you are. Because it's a fallen world. So there's only really one question. Because dogs do throw up on the floor. Kids don't always behave. Coworkers don't always do the job and pull their weight. There's only one way to go through this and to ask ourselves, will the suffering and the adversity that we experience make us wiser, sweeter, deeper, and stronger in the Lord, or will it make us bitter, hard, and joyless? Will it drive us closer to God or away from God? Will it make us more compassionate about other people, or is it going to make us harder and more cynical about human nature? Jesus is saying in this world we'll have tribulations. We have to see that. But there's a way of going through suffering to greatness. And Jesus is saying, I am. If you follow me, you will too. But I'll be with you. So what's the key? What's, what will keep the, these, these 
valleys that we're in from being so hard. It's worship. If you come off the mountain remembering the reality, even though most of your life, most of your most of our lives aren't up on the mountains, the spiritual mountains that we're on. But if we keep that before us, that He is God, that He is the one who loves us this much, that's worship. It's the ability to know what the Father has done through the Son and the sense of your heart of your reality, even though it ebbs and flows and it's sporadic. If we have that, we can come off the mountain and go on our journey to the cross, and it will turn us into something great and into something hard. In some ways, it's, it's, it's too easy a lesson. In some ways, when I looked at it, and I really don't want to think about suffering, I know none of us really do, to, to really admit that we'll have tribulation, because we're suburbanites, you know? We fix things, right? You know, we think if we're savvy, if we're good moral people, well, if you have one problem after another after another, you're just not smart enough. You need to go to class and learn some more how not to repeat those same mistakes. Or there's that American false Christianity that says, well, if you're just having one problem after another after another, you probably just haven't repented enough. I'm glad Lent's coming around the corner for you. You need to confess your sin more. And you need to live more according to biblical principles. My friends, that doesn't work in Bukuru, Nigeria. Jesus says, what greater principle is there than I took up the cross? You pick up yours and follow me. And as you do so, you'll have access through worship to the very presence of God. And you will go from greatness to greatness as you do so. Through Jesus Christ. And that's a foretaste of the resurrection. That's a foretaste of his second coming. We have to do that. Otherwise, we don't get it. So what difference does all this make, really? I mean, practically on the ground for each and every one of us. Because really, we're all kind of glory-starved. You know, all of us are fighting a sense that we're not as important as we like to be. You know, that... You know, really, we don't have much to offer. We're not really making a dent in our world, it feels. All of us has a sense of our insignificance. So we need people to love us. We need people, we need a family. We need to help others. And it's perfectly okay to help others. It's okay to help the poor. It's wonderful to raise your family. It's great to have a lover. It's great to do your job well and achieve something and really make a difference in the world. But if you're doing it to get glory, to convince yourself that you're okay, you've missed the whole point. Because what we need to listen to is to know and sense God's love. It's like this, you know, you, you've heard somebody said, wow, that, that girl is really good looking, or that guy is really good looking. And you believe it, that that person is good looking, and then one day you see him. And you go, wow, they are good looking. Did you get new information? No. But now you had a sense of what you knew. I love the restaurant downtown, Blue Point. Great place to eat. I highly encourage you. It takes a lot of money to go there, you know. 
I think I've been there twice in 10 years. I can tell you about all the incredible food, and you can believe it's great, and you believe what I tell you. But if you actually go there and you begin to eat at Blue Point, you're going to say, oh my, this is really good. Did you get new information? No. You're experiencing it. You're having a sense of it. Therefore, friends, it's one thing to know in your head that God loves you. It's one thing to know the glorious creator God of the universe loves you, cares for you, and holds you. It's another thing to sense it. If you know it and you don't sense it, then the other things in your life will be the things you functionally look for to be your glory. But if Jesus really is someone you've sometimes seen on the mountains, sometimes felt, experienced his ultimate reality, then and only then do these other things become the things you can just enjoy and not build your life on. Therefore, you'll never go through life. You'll never give him your most precious things. And you'll never trust him during the hard times. You'll never find suffering makes you wiser, deeper, and stronger, and sweeter. Instead, you'll just find that it makes you harder and bitter and cold unless you know how to trust Jesus with your most precious things. You only trust him with the most precious things through your worship. Well, how do we do that? It's in recognition of the words, this is my beloved son, listen to him. At the heart of the glory of God is love of God for his son. They're enveloped by it. They're surrounded by it. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said glory means welcome into the heart of things. The applause, the approval, the acknowledgement of God. Because on the cross, Jesus does not call God Father, which he does in all the other times. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at the cross. Because on the mountain of the cross, he's forsaken. Where on this mount, he's enveloped with the love of God. He's well pleased. And on the mountain he's embraced, but on the cross he's naked and in the dark. Why did he do that? Because of his love for you and for me. A great consolation for me that's changed me over the years is Paul's 8th chapter of the book of Romans, verse 16, where he states, The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Sometimes through the Holy Spirit you can hear God make this statement of unconditional, permanent, intimate love, but yet sometimes you sense it. That's what the trans, not the transfiguration means, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. Our spirits bear witness with his spirit that we are his children. Epiphany means turn your total trust over to Jesus Christ. Go to the mountain. And sometimes you don't just know about God's love, but you actually hear and you actually sense in your heart Him saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, 
And through my son, Jesus, I am pleased with you. I would love, I love you, and I would go to infinite cost and infinite depths to rescue you and not to lose you, and I have. You say, I'd love to have this. Look at the transfiguration and the cross. If you see Jesus Christ losing the embrace of God's love, as it were, his sonship from the mountain to the cross, and know what he's done for you, to the degree that that moves you, to the degree you experience your sonship, your daughtership, you'll sense it down to your soul. And it ebbs and flows for sure, but if you have access, access the presence of God through helplessness, not your good works, not your personal holiness, if you've given him your most precious things, if you see Jesus losing and being surrounded by the love of God going to the cross for you, you'll go back up to the mountain. And then when you come off the mountain into the mess of this world, even though you won't see everything that clearly, you'll be able to trust him. You'll be able to handle it. And he'll make you great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for this great, great promise through Jesus Christ, we can be enveloped with the beauty and the power and the love of heaven. And that, though it's only a foretaste, it's a taste, and we'll take it. And though it doesn't happen all the time, it does happen. And without it, we cannot possibly, possibly face life as it will come to us. Lord, it's crucial for each and every one of us, and yet it's very simple. And yet, Lord, it won't be enough for us just to believe the right things and go through the motions of the Christian life. We have to have a passionate personal, spiritual experience of you. We have to have a soul-satisfying sight of you in prayer and in worship. We cannot be a people who simply go through the motions by any means. And we ask this morning that you would help us to appropriate this right now. Truly access the things that we are to learn through this great passage of the Transfiguration. And we want to hear in our souls... You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. Let it be so through Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.